Hello, America. Welcome to the Muni Lowdown Podcast. My name is Paul Graves, and I'm the managing editor for DebtWire Municipals. I'm coming to you from Boston, but have some of our talented journalists from around the country joining me. And just a note that we're recording on the afternoon of Thursday, May 30th. So from our New York office, we have Patrick Ferguson. Pat, what's on tap for you today? So JEA, the municipal utility based in Jacksonville, Florida, is expecting weaker revenues over the next decade despite a growing customer base. Uh, This is prompting management to draw up a new plan. From Miami, we have another one of our talented reporters who also likes to tease me anytime there's inclement weather here in the north because it's always sunny in Miami. Simone Barable, Simone, what's... What's your topic today? Hi, Paul. So today I'm talking about a brand new Chapter 9 bankruptcy. You don't see those too frequently these days. And also about some discord with the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority's restructuring support agreement. And finally, from the windy city of Chicago, we have Caitlin Devitt. Caitlin, what's on your menu? Hi, Paul. Well, this, this week Chicago has a new mayor, and this week she held her first city council meeting. So I'll talk about that as well as an interview I had with um, her, the new finance committee chairman. All right, Patrick. So you mentioned you're going to talk about JEA's forecast. What does that forecast show? Well, JEA's forecast shows a decline in revenue over the next decade. It forecasts its revenue to fall by 8% by 2030. And interesting enough, at the same time, it forecasts its customer base to grow by 16%. So... By 2030, it forecasts that I'll have a $2.3 billion cash gap. And to make up for that shortfall, it will have to raise rates by 52% uh, during that period or or raise them by 42% and stop contributing money to the city of Jacksonville. Uh, JEA has already seen a decline in revenue in the first six months of this fiscal year from September 2018 to March Uh, Revenue from its electricity sales have fallen by 3%. Uh, Aaron Zan, the chief executive of JEA, and his management team are going to come up with a plan uh, to cut costs. So the team has to present its 2020 fiscal budget next month, and it's likely that we could see the report at the same time. The weaker expected sales revenue was mostly driven by increased energy efficiencies, uh, Zan said at the board meeting on Tuesday. He mentioned that utilities have to change the way they do business. So what does he mean by changing the way they have to do business? It's what we're seeing with JEA and uh, weaker forecast revenue and uh, declining consumer demand is uh, what is happening in a lot of areas of the country. Uh, because of more efficiencies and from businesses uh, and from consumers and cheaper energy prices. Uh, okay, I'm going to start that over. So what we're seeing with JEA and their forecast of weaker revenue is what we've seen in other parts of the country. It's challenging for utilities because of different energy efficiencies in businesses and residences It's challenging for utilities to navigate this new landscape of lower consumer demand and and sometimes cheaper energy prices. Back in 2006, JEA forecasts sales to rise faster than they did. It forecasts sales to be 30% higher in 17 than they actually were. 
So executives at the board meeting on Tuesday uh, mentioned programs from, you know, Firestone, the tire company that's working to produce some of its own energy, and companies like Facebook and tech companies that are installing solar capacity to power some of their the office buildings and doing different things there. One thing that JEA executives stressed was that by 2026, its customers will be able to produce and store their own electricity at the same cost as JEA can, de can deliver it. This is called grid parity, and they kind of, you know, mentioned that this would be this would be a big deal, maybe a turning point um, for for JEA and for other utilities when it happens to them. Okay, so does the Voxel project fit into this? So the Vogel project always looms large with JEA. Uh, JEA executives stress how much they have reduced JEA's uh, debt service. But a lot of the work that has been done to erase that debt service has been offset by increasing costs for the Vogel nuclear plant. So the debt associated with the project and JEA's agreement to purchase power from the two new nuclear reactors once they're in service in 20 years adds to the utility's fixed costs. And higher fixed costs means that a utility, JEA, has to charge a certain amount, even though in some cases energy prices might fall or consumers might provide their own energy. In its May financial report, JEA management said they were in negotiations with the Municipal Electric Authority of Georgia, also known as MIEG, to settle their dispute. Uh, JEA may have some more leverage uh, after a federal district court in Georgia shot down MIEG's lawsuit on May 9th. Uh, JEA's case is still pending in a district court in Florida, so we'll have to see what happens there. But uh, that's definitely still a major concern for JEA uh, moving forward with their, their expected costs. Thanks, Pat. So let's move on to Simone. Simone, tell us a little bit more about what's going on in Perla, Arkansas, and with the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority, or better known as PREPA. Yes, Perla, Arkansas. And if you haven't heard of it, you're not alone. It's a tiny town that the most recent census estimates had a population of 245. To underline that, it's 245 people, not 245,000 people, as in when I was up in New York, I lived in buildings with bigger populations than that. And other than being small, this Chapter 9 is unusual for a bunch of reasons. First, municipal bankruptcies aren't particularly common. This is only the second one of 2019. Those that affect actual municipalities are even less common. It's normally special districts like hospital districts or sanitary districts, normally out of Nebraska, that file. This is only the second bankruptcy of an actual city government since 2014 when Detroit filed. The other one was Hillview, Kentucky. The second thing is the city saying that it has more assets than liabilities. The town has 1.5 million in assets and a little over 300,000 in liabilities. And on their list of assets, just to give you a sense of how small this place is, they include things like office furniture and a non-working Crown Victoria. Their biggest asset is a water and sewer system for $1.1 million, which is a valuation they base on a purchase off offer. And they had a doing business as name of the Perla Water Association. But their bankruptcy filings aren't very specific about why they're filing. They're only saying that they have a debt that can't be paid. 
the final unusual thing, and unusual may be the wrong word here, but the thing is that it's in Arkansas. That's not exactly unusual. There have been 15 Arkansas Chapter 9 since 1995, according to PACER, which is the federal docket website. But it's always interesting when you get an Arkansas Chapter 9 because Arkansas is famously the only state to file for bankruptcy. This was back in the 1930s before states were prohibited from filing for Chapter 9, but it's trivia that's relevant to the current filing. And Puerto Rico, of course, has filed for Title Three. Right, exactly. Puerto Rico, like Arkansas, has filed. The difference, of course, is that Puerto Rico is a territory, not a state, and Congress created legislation in 2016 to allow it and its entities to file for something akin to Chapter 9. And we've seen one entity, the Puerto Rico Sales Tax and Financing Corporation, COFINA by its Spanish acronym, emerge from Title III. And now the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority, known as PREPA, is also looking for a way to emerge, with about 58% of its bondholders on board with a restructuring support agreement that would get it out of bankruptcy. So is that restructuring agreement a done deal? Hardly. So in the first place, they probably need 67% of bondholders to sign on before it goes through, although presumably a court could in theory cram them down even if they fall short of that number. And you also may need legislative support to get this deal done. Last week, the minority speaker of the House, Rafael Hernandez, who's also known as Tatito, urged the legislature to reject the agreement. He objected to rate increases. Puerto Rico is already one of the most expensive places for electricity in the U.S., and this would increase rates by 28 percent, according to local media. He also argued that the deal wouldn't provide sufficient oversight for the authority. The Center for a New Economy, which is an influential think tank in Puerto Rico, also gave the deal a thumbs down also because of higher electricity rates and because it doesn't do enough to transform the grid to renewables. But whatever happens, we might be able to look forward to additional documents about PREPA's proposed privatization next week. A Commonwealth judge ordered PREPA to disclose documents related to its privatization process to a couple of private organizations on June 7th. So we'll see what comes of that. Thanks, Simone. All right, Caitlin, we're going to close out the podcast with your discussion on the new mayor in the Windy City, Lori Lightfoot, and what she's been up to lately. Well, what she's been up to lately is yesterday, she was um, sworn in on the 20th, and yesterday she had her first city council meeting. Um, And at that meeting, she introduced her to reorganization of the council and the committee chairs. She tapped Alderman Scott Waggis back, and he's been um, the leader of the council's progressive caucus. Um, as the chair of the finance committees, this makes him one of the most powerful members of the council. Um, public finance people get used to his name. He's going to vet all bond deals, um, big financial transactions, and other big ticket financial items that come before the city. He replaces Alderman Ed Burke, who had headed up the committee for 30 years, three decades. Um, Burke was recently reelected as alderman, but he stepped down as finance committee chairman um, a few months ago after he was federal indicted for after he faced um, a federal indictment for a count of attempted extortion, extortion, and um, more charges on that could come as soon as this week. 
So that's Burke is out, Wagaspak is in, he's going to be a key figure in the administration, assuming he keeps that chair going forward. And like I said, Lightfoot took office about 10 days ago, and that appointment of Wagaspak and other committee chairs was the first real test of her power. She passed easily, the council approved her reorganization with a voice vote, they didn't even require a bulk, uh, roll call. So they, the council has the legal power to block her appointment. So the fact that they voted in favor of what she did is, say, is seen as a sign of you know, possible cooperation, at least at this point. So you had an opportunity to talk to Waggis Pack. Did I say his name right? Yes. Yeah, it's a, it, it's a hard one to spell if you were in a spelling bee. <laughs> but uh, so what happened when you talked to him? Well, we talked to him for a while after the um, council meeting, and he's, he, you know, just sort of a range of topics. He talked about how different he's going to be from Burke. That was one of his big points, saying that he's not going to have any personal stake or any interest in any of the deals that come before him or come before the committee. That was sort of, he was talking about Burke, who had a law firm that handles real estate business and property tax appeals, and he has that law firm. Um, and that business is, is tangled up in Burke's federal indictment. So Wagaspak also said he's going to push for more transparency. This is something you're, you're hearing a lot from the Lightfoot administration. And he's going to want more hearings on things like legal settlements, which, you know, analyze people who follow Chicago know that those carry a big price tag for Chicago. Um, he also said he's not going to be doing any backroom deals. He's not going to be saying one thing to bankers, for example, behind closed doors and another thing in public at the committee hearings. Uh, the, this is uh, one thing that's interesting. Lightfoot introduced this rule that looks like it's going to be um, approved, and that he's in favor of is the light is the finance committee meetings are going to start to be live streamed, and that's always been sort of a sore point for people. And you know, a lot of analysts I talk to and people wish that they were because a lot of important business goes down at those finance committee meetings, and they're not live streamed. So if you're not able to go to the city council you know, to City Hall at 10 in the morning on Monday or 11 or whatever they're held, then um, you miss out on it. The City Council meetings are live streamed, but none of the committee meetings are. So now it looks like all the committee meetings, including the Finance Committee meetings, will be live streamed. So he talked about that also being transparency on the transparency front. But in terms of the brass tax and the nitty gritty, he didn't offer many details. He's like Lightfoot in that way. They, they just haven't said that much yet on the financial front. They just always, you know, the administration are saying, and he sort of repeated it, that they're, everybody's just trying to get a handle on the numbers and they're not comfortable saying the numbers yet. Well, I respect that he wants to meet soon with the new CFO and the budget team to get a sense um, of the challenges. He did say, you know, that revenue should be on the table. Lightfoot's kind of gone back and forth about property taxes. She's voiced reluctance to raise them saying, you know, that she understands that a lot of residents feel a lot of pressure from them, but at the same time, it's kind of, you know, it's this major lever to pull. So Wagaspec said she's smart to keep them on the table, possibly, as well as other revenues, and, um, you know, because the city is going to probably need them going forward. So on a related note, the Illinois General, General Assembly is in its final days of session. What's happening there, and are there any implications for the Windy City? Well, yeah, there will be. There's, yeah, this is a real busy week for Illinois and for Chicago. The General Assembly is doing its typical thing where it's in this last minute frenzy to get everything passed before midnight on Friday, May 31st. That's when the regular session ends. After that, everything needs a three-fifths majority. So they're trying to get all this stuff passed, and then they're just madly meeting, and we don't know the scheduling, and um, things just kind of pop up. 
So they're expected, they still haven't passed the budget. You know, the, the fiscal year starts on July 1, so they're expected to pass a budget today or tomorrow. Um, the Senate yesterday passed legalized recreational marijuana. That was a heavy lift in one of Governor J.B. Pritzker's um, priorities. So they did that. That's expected to go to the House. Maybe the votes are there for that to get passed in the House. Um, Pritzker's built in revenues from the marijuana and from legalized sports betting into his fiscal 20 budget. Although I've heard that, that the final budget that gets passed won't rely on those revenues. But in short, there's lots left to be done. Lightfoot. Um, has praised this, the General Assembly, General Assembly has already passed graduated income tax proposal referendum that will go before the voters in November 2020. And that was Pritzker's kind of main thing to shift the state from its flat tax to a graduated tax to ask the voters to approve that. She's in favor of that. She likes that. She's pushing hard for a casino for Chicago. That is another giant lift. It appears every year. Usually doesn't go anywhere, but this year because of the sports betting bill, it might move forward. She's in favor of legalized cannabis. That's going to mean more money for the city. Um, she wants more help from the state. You know, she's been kind of vague, like she has been on the other financial stuff. She wants more help from the state. She wants more help. You know, she wants some wealthy corporations to pay more. So we have a lot that remains to be seen, even though the hours of the clock is ticking down. So one more question. I know you mentioned Governor Pritzker. I remember he's, he's a new governor as well. He came into office earlier this year, and I remember his administration was talking about being more transparent to the press and to the public in general, and I know there was some, I'll call it disagreement among local media in terms of like whether or not he was really being transparent in the beginning. Uh, what's your sense of what's going on with Mayor Lightfoot up to now? I know it's still early, uh, but it, does it seem different, the same? I think... It- it is still early, and the real test will come when um, you know there starts to be some regular criticism. Right now, I would say she's in a type of honeymoon phase with the press, um, so that the, the test is yet to come. But I mean, Rahm Emanuel, the out, who left the outgoing mayor, was famous for having tightly controlled um, messages and tightly controlled approach to the press. You saw that. Um, with uh, President Barack Obama when Rahm was um, Obama's chief of staff as well. So Rahm was famous for that. I don't think she's going to be like that. So far, she seems a lot more open. She's doing a lot of interviews. She'll spend a lot of time, you know, she'll spend more time longer with them. Yesterday in a press conference that she had at her city council meeting, she really called on a lot of people and seemed a little bit um, less sort of uptight and controlling than Rahm was. So we'll see. It's you know, she's made it one of her campaign platforms, transparency, openness, um, not using the press. She says, you know, like a lot of the aldermen now use the press and sort of they play out their power games in the press. She's kind of promised not to do that. Um, so sounds good. We'll have to wait and see. And have things gotten better with the Pritzker administration in terms of how the media is viewing them? Or is that still the same? Strained. I think, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure I'm not a, down in Springfield a lot, so it's hard to say. I think what, what you're talking about is when he unveiled the budget, and so, and that was really, um, you know, an annual thing, so we'll have to see if they learn a little bit from that, and if they're going to be, if they're going to be um, less sort of controlling about the way they try to stop the press from quoting certain people during the budget. We'll have to wait till next year, but otherwise, 
Yeah, I would say I haven't heard many complaints from you know from state house reporters from other people when it comes to Prisker. All right. Well, thanks, Caitlin. Also, thanks to Pat and Simone for their contributions today. A special thank you to our podcast producer, Andrew Cosentino, who always makes sure that our mics sound right. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and look forward to talking to you next week. Take care.